Section 2 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1, Part 2, Youth. This is not a pleasant portrait, but there are better features in it. To his sense of duty, mistaken as we may deem it, he was honestly faithful. He was frugal and pious and chaste, though the dullness of his court made virtue itself odious, and his parsimony did not prevent constant and unbounded demands on Parliament for the debts of the civilist. His talents, like his morals, were not of an attractive kind, but they must not be underrated. He was the ablest political strategist of his day. He had to struggle against men of genius supported by popular enthusiasm on the one hand, and an impracticable aristocracy inured to supreme power on the other. He had during his reign to deal with the elder Pitt and the younger Fox, when they were the idols of the nation, with the haughty alliance of Grenville and Grey, with the intolerable obstinacy of Grenville's father, with the close oligarchy of Whig nobles that had encircled and enchained the throne, and with the turbulent democracy of Wilkes. He defeated or outwitted them all. Pitt impatiently betrayed the truth after an interview with the king, then just recovering from a fit of insanity. Never, said the statesman, has he so baffled me. By a certain persistent astuteness, by the dexterous utilizing of political rivalries, by cajoling some men and betraying others, by a resolute adroitness that turned disaster and even disease into instruments of his aim, the king realized his darling object of converting the doge ship to which he had succeeded into a real and to some extent a personal monarchy. At any rate, he indefinitely enlarged its boundaries. It is necessary to dwell on the character of the sovereign who played so prominent a part before and after our story. Little, however, need here be said of North, for within fourteen months he had ceased to be minister, and with the exception of his obscure share in the coalition government, had retired from prominent public life. But his reputation is below his real merits, though it owes something to the majestic eulogy of Gibbon. In the art of gaining affection and in debating power he was second only to Fox, he was courageous and resourceful, cool in adversity, of an unruffled temper. He held, moreover, the first place in the state for twelve years, and left office with all the unlimited opportunities for wealth that were then offered by war loans, even a poorer man than he entered it. His cynical and easy wit indeed covered a higher character than many with greater pretensions, and his good nature, facile to a fault, which made him lend himself to reprehensible acts, and to a policy of which at last he clearly saw the folly and the wickedness, is the main reproach that history has to urge against him, though that is heavy enough. He had apparently formed himself on Walpole, with the unlucky difference that while Walpole had to deal with Caroline of Anspach, North found his master in George the Third. It was, of course, inevitable that Pitt should attach himself to the opposition, more especially as that part of it 
which had constituted the personal following of his father, still held together under the leadership of Shelburne. A month after taking his seat, he had made his maiden speech, February 26, 1781, and had been hailed by the first men in Parliament, with the ready generosity of genius, as henceforth worthy to rank with them. He spoke on behalf of Burke's bill for economical reform, unexpectedly, being called upon by the House, and his first speech was what perhaps no other first speech ever was, an effective reply in debate. Fox and North and Burke vied in congratulation. He is not a chip of the old block, said the latter. It is the old block itself. He spoke again in May on a question of the control of public expenditure with not less success, and for the third and last time in the session, on a motion of Fox's for peace with America. His speeches, therefore, in his first session were devoted to peace and retrenchment, and his main effort in the next to parliamentary reform. The three causes, nearest and most congenial to him, the beacons of his earlier and the will-o'-the-wisps of his later career. We catch glimpses of him now as a lad about town, leading something of a fashionable life during the season, though dutifully going the western circuit as soon as Parliament rose. A club had been formed at Goosetrees by a score of young men who had entered Parliament together at the election of 1780, an idea which was destined to be revived exactly a century afterwards, here he supped every night, not as we may be sure, without port wine. Here he gambled until he became sensible of the insidious fascination of the gaming table and turned his back on it forever. The example of Fox had been perhaps sufficient. We read of Pitt in 1780 as going to three parties of an evening, two of them masked balls one given by a lady of apparently not unspotted reputation, and concluding his evening at the Pantheon. A more remarkable evening was that on which he met Gibbon. The great man, lord of all he surveyed, was holding forth, snuff-box in hand, amid deferential acquiescence, when a deep, clear voice was heard impugning his conclusions. All turned round in amazement and saw that it belonged to a tall, thin, awkward youth who had hitherto sate silent. Between Pitt, for it was he, and Gibbon, an animated and brilliant argument arose, in which the junior had so much the best of it that the historian took his hat and retired. Nor would he return. That young gentleman, he said, is, I doubt not, extremely ingenious and agreeable, but I must acknowledge that his style of conversation is not exactly what I am accustomed to, so you must positively excuse me. It is almost a relief after this to find him in 1781, waging war with increasing success on pheasants and partridges. He did not even disdain the practical jokes of an undergraduate. We found one morning, says Wilberforce, the fruits of Pitt's earlier rising and the careful sowing of the garden beds with the fragments of a dress hat in which Ryder had overnight come down from the opera. In truth, no man was less of a prig. He was so loftily placed in early youth that he was compelled to a certain austerity of demeanor in order to maintain respect, and he had indeed something of the lofty shyness of Peel. 
but at this unconstrained moment of his life he was, said one who knew all that was most brilliant in English society for half a century, the wittiest man I ever knew. At the end of Pitt's first session, Fox had declared him to be already one of the first men in Parliament. He was to know no flagging in his onward course. His genius was not to want the opportunity for which genius so often pines, the accumulating calamities of his country, demanded the best efforts of the noblest ambition. The session had ended on 18th of July, 1781. On the 19th of October, Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown. The news reached London late in November and shattered even the imperturbable ease of North. He took it as he would have taken a bullet in his breast. He opened his arms exclaiming wildly as he paced up and down the room, Oh God, it is all over. All was indeed over as regards the ministry and their policy, British dominion in the revolted colonies, and the administration which had so long asserted it existed from that moment only in name. The catastrophe was followed by minor disasters, the retreat of Kempenfeldt, the loss of Menorca, and of many of our West Indian possessions, though these were forgotten in the dazzling victory of Rodney. But the long struggle was over and had ended in the humiliation of Great Britain. It was the lowest point that she had ever touched. The sun of England's glory, said Pitt, is set. Twenty years before, it had seemed at its meridian, and in the course of another generation it shone again with renewed luster, but now it was totally eclipsed. Before the end of March, even the king was convinced that he must part with North and submit to peace and the Whigs. During the fierce contests which raged in Parliament between the surrender of Yorktown and the fall of the ministry, Pitt bore so conspicuous a part as to justify the declaration which he made just before the latter event that he had no idea of forming part of any new administration. But were my doing so more within my reach, I feel myself bound to declare that I never would accept a subordinate situation. The position that was offered him by Rockingham, who succeeded North, was subordinate, but not undignified. The vice-treasuryship of Ireland was little more than a sinecure, but it had been held by Pitt's own father, and in point of emolument was one of the prizes of the political world yet he refused it without hesitation. That he was wise there can be no doubt. He retained his freedom and used that freedom well. The new government had not been formed six weeks before Pitt brought forward a motion for parliamentary reform. It took indeed a shape to which for constitutional changes of gravity objection has sometimes been raised, for he brought forward no specific plan, but moved for the institution of an inquiry composed of such men as the House should in their wisdom select as the most proper and the best qualified for investigating this subject and making a report to the House of the best means of carrying into execution a moderate and substantial reform of the representation of the people. The speech he delivered on this occasion, much applauded at the time, is worth reading even now in the condensed, denuded report that has reached us. 
it is remarkable for its vigorous declamation against the power of the crown, which Fox and Burke could hardly have exceeded in their speeches on the same subject when Pitt was minister in 1784. He allowed that under the Rockingham government, the injurious, corrupt, and baneful influence of the crown had ceased to exist, but it was the duty of Parliament to provide for the future and to take care that this secret and dark system should never be revived to contaminate the fair and honorable fabric of our government. At all times, this pernicious influence has been pointed to as the fertile source of all our miseries, and it had been truly said of it that it had grown with our growth and strengthened with our strength. Unhappily, however, for this country, it had not decayed with our decay nor diminished with our decrease, and it had supported North's ministry for a length of years against all the consequences of a mischievous system and a desolated empire. The irony of political destiny and the astuteness of George III could receive no better demonstration than the fact that in less than two years Pitt was defending the prerogative of the monarch against the assaults of North and of those whom he now described as a set of men who were the friends of constitutional freedom. Yet in truth, the anomaly, as is often the case in politics, was more apparent than real. What he denounced were the crawling race of Welburn Ellis's and the Jack Robinsons, the suspected shadow of Butte and the pervading flavor of Jenkinson, the detailed bribes of Martin, the mingled cajolery and intimidation of Henry Fox. What he defended in 1784 were the rights of the constituencies betrayed by the formation of the coalition against a close and corrupt parliament in a struggle where the king had intervened for once as the agent of the people. It was the general election of 1784 that ratified the king's action and cleared Pitt of responsibility. Had it turned differently, he might have ranked with Strafford and with Lauderdale. Pitt, in his first reform speech, analyzed the various kinds of boroughs which were either representative shams or, worse still, were open to foreign bidders. Among these purchasers he named the Nabob of Arcot, who had no less than seven or eight members in this house. Finally, he cited his father, one of whom every member in the house could speak with more freedom than himself. That person was not apt to indulge vague and chimerical speculations, inconsistent with practice and expediency. He knew that it was the opinion of this person that, without recurring to first principles in this respect, and establishing a more solid and equal representation of the people, by which the proper constitutional connection should be revived, this nation, with the best capacities for grandeur and happiness of any on the face of the earth, must be confounded with the mass of those whose liberties were lost in the corruption of the people." In spite of a speech which was evidently forcible and eloquent, and of the support of Fox in his very first form, and of Sheridan, then his undersecretary, much above anything he has yet done in the House, the motion was lost by twenty votes. The government spoke indeed with a divided voice of the subject. The Duke of Richmond, 
master general of the ordinance and a leading member of the cabinet, was in favor of annual parliaments and manhood suffrage. Lord John Cavendish was diffident of the effect of any such reform, though he voted on this occasion for Pitt. Lord Rockingham gave forth a troubled and ambiguous note, rent as he was between regard for Fox and the dominant influence of Burke, who was vehemently hostile. A few days later, this feeling found overmastering expression when Alderman Sawbridge, Pitt's seconder on this occasion, brought forward a motion for shortening parliaments, and Burke broke forth in one of his impetuous invectives against Pitt and all who should attempt to touch the sacred fabric of the Constitution. While Pitt, in refusing office, had retained the positive advantage of independence, he had also gained the negative benefit of not forming part of a government as divided against itself as its members had formerly been from the government of Lord North. Under a stormier star was no administration ever born. Furious jealousies broke out during the process of formation. Thurlow, North's chancellor, remained in office to the open mortification of Loughborough as an abiding source of suspicion and intrigue. Another legacy of North's, the Lord Advocate Dundas, although less prominent, was not less justly regarded with mistrust as a powerful and unscrupulous politician whose only connection with the Whigs was the memory of bitter altercation and unsparing conflict, who with a happy instinct sometimes inclined to Shelburne, the proximate prime minister, sometimes to the young statesman so soon to follow him, and to absorb all the powers of the state. Shelburne himself formed another element of disturbance. Not merely did Fox, his colleague in the secretaryship of state, cherish an hereditary hatred for him, but he had aroused great jealousy by having been at first entrusted with the task of forming the government. The king dexterously fomented these causes of discord among his enemies, and flatly refused even to see Rockingham, so that all the communications between him and his prime minister during the construction of the administration were carried on through the ominous medium of Shelburne and Shelburne alone. All these germs of mistrust were quickened when Shelburne secured peerages and places for his friends from the king, paid the chancellor compliments, which very much scandalized all good men, as Fox writes, and intrigued successfully with Dundas. It is therefore not matter for surprise that within a month of their assuming office, Shelburne and Fox, the two secretaries of state, had each their separate plenipotentiary at Paris negotiating for peace. Such a condition of affairs had little of comfort or permanency. The government, ruined by intrigue and under virtuous but incapable guidance, could not in any case have continued to exist. The influenza that carried off Lord Rockingham only accelerated the end of an impossible state of things. End of Section 2